0: please, to 1 Corinthians. Okay, let me read the text for us, please. So I'm going to actually start in that second half of the last passage in the last verse in in, uh, verse 31 of chapter 12. And we'll read the first three verses of chapter 13. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Father, as we look at these words this afternoon, Lord, speak to us. May your spirit work in our hearts, our minds, our affections, and our will. To hear what you would have us hear, Lord, and to be the people that you've raised us up to be through the mighty work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you could bring up the sermon slides, please, that would be good. Okay, thank you. Good. Chapter 13 is a very familiar passage to most people. Even for those who are only superficially familiar with the scriptures, they often have some familiarity with this passage. Amidst the contemporary church, this passage is often associated with marriage and weddings. In fact, walk through the wedding section of any contemporary Bible bookstore or search wedding gifts on CBD.com and you're going to discover pounds and pounds of 1 Corinthians 13 merchandise. Now, while the application of chapter 13 to marriage is certainly appropriate, it's not where Paul's head was at when he wrote it. So to commandeer chapter 13 as the wedding passage reduces this passage to something far less than what Paul meant it to be. That is, it misses Paul's authorial intent. Now, why do I say this? Because Paul's exaltation of biblical love is sandwiched in the middle of Paul's larger discussion of the nature and character of the church. Now, this is important because earlier in the letter, Paul presented a relatively lengthy treatment on marriage. You may remember that. That was all of chapter 7. So if Paul meant for his words on love to first and foremost inform and reform our understanding of marriage, Paul would have said what he said about love back in chapter 7. But as it is, Paul's words on love appear within the heart of Paul's discussion on the church. What I'm trying to say is this. When we hear Paul's words in chapter 13, the thought that Paul wants his readers to immediately bring to mind is not marriage, but the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. In other words, the chief purpose of Paul's words in chapter 13 is first and foremost to inform and reform our grasp and understanding of the church. So my desire and my prayer this afternoon is that we would approach this text with fresh eyes and steward these truths with the weightiness intended by the Apostle. Now, it's important that we understand the bigger picture. So let's begin by reminding ourselves of Paul's underlying purpose in his letter to the Corinthians and how Paul's train of thought gives way to the organization and flow of his letter. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in order to confront the church's worldly, every man for his own interests kind of heart attitude that crippled the church's joy. It crippled their fruitfulness. And it crippled their expression of the gospel's power to transform death to life. As a consequence of the Corinthians' entanglement in worldly thinking, they were divided among themselves. And this division was evidenced by their fixation upon external things by which they compared and ranked each other. We hear this at the beginning of Paul's letter in chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then later in chapter three, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And then he moves on to chapter four where he writes, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And in 8, we hear the apostle say, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now, beginning in chapter 11 and continuing through the end of 14, Paul is seeking to correct the Corinthians' understanding of the church, which is flawed by their arrogance and their self-exaltation. Now, as we've seen and will continue to see, Paul shows that to relate to the church as a mere human organization is a pitifully, pitifully underdeveloped grasp of what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. We dare not see the church as a mere institution, a wooden collection of confessional traditions. We dare not see the church as some sort of optional supplement to our Christian walk. But perhaps I get ahead of myself. As, Paul's, as part of Paul's teaching on the church, Paul spills a lot of ink to explain the purpose and the nature of the spiritual gifts. In fact, that's really the thrust of chapters 12 and chapter 14. And Paul's exaltation of authentic love is right smack in the middle of this topic. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does he do this? Why does Paul find it necessary to say what he says about love in the midst of his discussion on the church's nature and gifting? Well, Paul knows that apart from his teaching on love, it's virtually certain that the Corinthians would continue to steward the church's spiritual gifts with the very same sinful, divisive mindset addressed through the rest of the letter, since these gifts, by their very nature, are characterized by distinction and diversity. In other words, apart from Paul's corrective, the Corinthians would continue abusing the distinction and diversity of the gifts to exalt the alleged worth or honor of some members of the church while diminishing or even demeaning others. Well, Let's begin to look at the text. Again, uh, I want you to see how pivotal chapter 13 is in the mind of Paul. And let's begin by noticing Paul's transition at the end of chapter 12. Paul momentarily pauses his teaching on the spiritual gifts and he shifts his attention to the topic of love with the following summary and transition. Paul writes in 12 at the end of uh, verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. The language Paul uses in his list of the spiritual gifts at the end of 12 is, suggests some sort of hierarchy, not a good word, or maybe interdependency, perhaps a better word, with respect to how the gifts work together for the common good. And two observations are noteworthy here. Paul's ordinal references used to introduce his list, list of gifts in verses 27 and 28, that is his, his language first, second, third, and so forth, seems to suggest that there's a certain order in which the gifts were intended to depend upon one another and then paul's exhortation in verse 31 earnestly desire the higher gifts strongly suggest that there were relative differences in how the gifts actually accomplished their intended purpose both of these observations create the sense that Paul's argument at the end of 12 is moving from the lesser to the greater. In fact, when Paul says, I will show you a still more excellent way, it's undeniable that Paul's train of thought is actually moving from the lesser to the greater to the greatest. The point I want us to see is that the topic of authentic, authentic love is the high point or the pinnacle of Paul's treatment of the church in chapters 11 through 14. So while Paul has much to say about the nature of the church and how the church is the function, Paul's words on love is the climax of Paul's argument. In the nutshell, Paul's argument is that the love he describes is the essential quality and the single defining attribute that makes Christ's church the church. Nothing is more necessary and fundamental to the church than the love that Paul describes. For it is this love, exalted by the apostle, that is the very lifeblood of the church, the very thing whose expression testifies of the church's divine possession and supernatural agency. Paul's implication is loud and clear. Though the Corinthians may exercise these higher gifts in a way that might appear to exact maximum benefit, something greater is still required. The gifts themselves, as vital as they are, they cannot carry the day on their own. In fact, it's not a stretch to suggest that Paul's emphasis in chapter 13 implies that in Paul's mind, all of the problems he addressed earlier in the letter... Thus far, we're ultimately rooted in the lack of authentic biblical love among the Corinthian, Corinthian church. Now, having looked at Paul's transition, let's look more closely at the passage itself. And let's begin by noting the overall structure of Paul's argument. Okay, this is the overall structure of chapter 13. The first three verses relate to the criticality of love. That's our passage for this afternoon. And then in verses 4 through the first half of 8, there is a description or the qualities of love. And then finally in the second half of 8 through the end of the chapter, we hear of the durability or the permanence of love. So today we're going to focus on the first section, the criticality of love. That's my job today to expand upon that and bring that to our awareness. The criticality of love. Paul establishes the supreme importance and necessity of love. In fact, Paul makes it plain that love, as he described it, is a non-negotiable necessity, a must-have for the church and each believer in the church. Paul presents this truth uh, through a series of very weighty warnings whose extreme language is intended to shock his listeners. The gifts... And sacrifices, Paul mentions, are all things that his listeners held in high esteem. And the thought that the value of these things could be stripped of all worth due to the absence of love, well, that, that was unthinkable among Paul's audience. His purpose is simple. Paul wants to seize their undivided attention in order to radically change the way they think. That's what Paul wants to do. That's what he wants to do in these first three verses. Paul's warnings are grammatically structured in the form of multiple if clauses. And Paul presents a series of conditions that, if true, bring three very tragic, very chilling charges to bear against the church, against the professing believer. The essential message of this afternoon is this. The essential message of our text is thus. Without love, the alleged believer is inconsequential, irrelevant, and impoverished. And that's what we'll spend the rest of this afternoon talking about. Without love, you are inconsequential. Verse 13.1 reads, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Again, the essential idea of this first verse is that without love, you and your apparent giftedness are inconsequential. As already mentioned, it's with purpose and intentionality that Paul illustrates his point in these first three verses by referencing those gifts and services that were apparently held in high esteem among the Corinthians. Paul's further comments on the spiritual gifts in chapter 14 reveal that the Corinthians were preoccupied with the gift of tongues. And so it's not a coincidence that Paul chose tongues as the first gift in his litany of warnings. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love. Now, why does he say of men and of angels? Well, to begin with, this is not the first time in the letter that Paul mentions angels. In fact, it isn't even the first time that Paul mentions angels uh, together with men. Earlier in the letter, when Paul confronted the Corinthians' attitude of superiority, even ridiculing their spiritual swagger, if you will, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians four nine, he said, For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles I'm sorry, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, and here it is, to angels and to men. In four nine, Paul mentions angels and men as a way of expressing an exhaustive breadth. Or the totality of something. And that's the same sense he's expressing in 13.1. Paul is making an extreme statement. When one spoke in a tongue, it appears that they were gifted to speak in a particular language, a known language, but not all known languages. So Paul is effectively saying, if I possess the ability to speak in every earthly and heavenly language, that is, if there was not a single form of communication amidst all earthly and heavenly realms in which I was not empowered to speak. Here's an illustration to help grasp Paul's sentiment. In the 2016 Summer Olympics, there were a total of 306 medal events across 28 different sports. So a statement that would carry the same force of Paul's words in Corinthians Uh, 13.1 would be something like this. If you earned a gold, silver, and bronze medal in every event, in every sport, that's the same exhaustive breath with which Paul is seeking to communicate his point this afternoon. That's what Paul wants his listeners to hear in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, most scholars agree that what Paul has in mind here are the use of these instruments in a pagan context. The cymbal was used in Hebrew music. We read about that in Chronicles. We see it in Ezra and we see it in Nehemiah. But the cymbal played an even greater role in the heathen worship of the goddess Sibylle and Bacchus. And Paul's reference to a noisy gong is even more illuminating and some scholars believe that that might actually be a direct reference to something that was called the copper bowl of dodona at the oracle of zeus in dodona dodona is an area of greece and this is where zeus was believed to speak to his priests through the rustling leaves of a prominent oak tree and what they had built was a series of copper basins copper cauldrons or copper gongs that were arranged in a perimeter around this tree. And what's really important here is that they were designed to touch each other. And what would happen at a certain point in the year, acorns and other debris would fall from the surrounding trees and strike one or more of these copper cauldrons. And the cauldron itself would, of course, resonate or echo a tone. But because they were connected, the entire ring would soon resonate with that tone. And so at a particular point in the year, there'd be so much debris falling from these trees that it said that this entire perimeter of cop- this copper assembly would sort of ring out and echo and harmonize uh, uh, perpetually, continually, 24-7, because there's so much stuff in the air that kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And so this copper bowl became uh, a, a sort of a, a representative or descriptive of a person who talked incessantly, that is an empty prattler. Someone who talks so incessantly that what they said was worthless and inconsequential. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in this illustration. And in fact, I think we see at least a partial illustration of what Paul might be talking about in the empty ravings of Baal's priests that we read about in 1 Kings 18, where we read how God directed Elijah to confront the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings eighteen twenty six and later in 29, we read, now listen, remember, think empty prattling. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. And what happened? No one paid attention. And so what Paul is saying is this. If you bear the gift of tongues to such an extreme degree that you are divinely empowered to speak in every earthly and heavenly language, but you lack love, and you are nothing but an empty prattler. Your utterances are nothing but movements of air. Guess what? You're ignorable. And your seeming fruitfulness is inconsequential to the kingdom. This is Paul's first tragic indictment against the loveless. In verse 2, we read, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. The essential idea is that without love you are irrelevant. That is of no account to to the display and advancement of God's glory. In this second verse, Paul presents a pair of conditions, prophetic powers and all faith. Now, I say there's only two conditions as opposed to four because of the text's parallel nature. Look down at the text again. Just as the phrase, so as to remove mountains, describes the nature of faith, the clause that concludes with all mysteries and all knowledge describes the nature of prophetic powers. So we're talking about two conditions with additional descriptors. So let's look at this first condition. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now we understand this condition best, not to mention what Paul will say in chapter 14, when we recognize that in the Old Testament, most of the prophet's prophetic ministry was not related to predicting the future what we might call uh, foretelling, but instead communicating God's word with respect to present circumstances or what we'd call foretelling. Now, to be sure, the prophets did occasionally predict the future. And sometimes the ultimate fulfillment of their prediction was well beyond the lifetime of the original audience. But their predictions were, more often than not, characterized by at least an imminent Fulfillment that always served the purposes of their foretelling, And this imminent fulfillment also authenticated them in their role as a prophet of Yahweh, according to Deuteronomy 18. But the point is, we should not think of prophets primarily as those whose job was to predict the future, but rather those whose job it was to speak to the present circumstances of the nation, calling the nation back to covenant faithfulness, and doing so under the direct inspiration of what Yahweh has told the prophet to speak. Okay, So a prophet was first and foremost someone who spoke according to the divine revelation of Yahweh. Okay, And he spoke to the present circumstances of the nation's condition. Some of that included prediction. Now with all this clarification in mind, Paul's additional descriptors of understanding all mysteries and all knowledge... It kind of makes perfect sense. When Paul refers to understanding all mysteries, he probably has in mind the wisdom or the mystery that he spoke to earlier in his letter. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, Paul wrote, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Or 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And in 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul's reference to all knowledge echoes his words during the opening of the letter where he affirmed the authenticity of their faith. He wrote in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Now this warning was very pointed. Because as we've already noted at numerous points throughout our prior study, the Corinthians had a flattered view of themselves on the basis of their knowledge. So once again, Paul uses language that cannot be ignored to make his point that even if you have been made to grasp with totality the wonder and truths of God's mighty purposes, And even if you've come to possess this privilege through God's direct revelation to you, without love, you are absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, of course, we have other references in Scripture that describe either an actual or alleged prophetic gift that was of no benefit to the gift's recipient. And Paul probably had these or similar instances in mind as well. Shortly after Samuel anointed Saul king, but before Saul was actually installed as king, we read in 1 Samuel 10, when they came to Gibeah, that is Saul and his servant, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. At best, at best, Saul was a squandering servant of grace, and at worst, Saul was beyond the safety of God's redemptive community. This, the point is that in Saul's case, his prophetic gift in and of itself was not a guarantee or even an indicator of Saul's spiritual faithfulness over the long term. Sadly, Saul is not the only illustration of this. The Lord himself provides a chilling warning of the danger of self-deception and the tragedy that follows during his sermon on the mount discourse in Matthew 7:22 we read on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness And Paul's warning in our present text is no less chilling. As mentioned, Paul's warning in verse 2 is a compound condition. And the second condition, along with his warning, is this. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love. Paul's imagery should sound very familiar to us. Paul brings to mind... Jesus' exhortation to his disciples when they marveled at the withered fig tree Jesus had cursed. And we read about this in Matthew 21 where our Lord said, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And so Paul warns his listeners, Explaining, if you have a multitude of prophetic powers, even if you demonstrate the superlative faith that Jesus exhorted his disciples, but do not have love, then you are absolutely nothing. You are nothing. As in Paul's first warning, the idea is that one who possesses such an overwhelming degree Of apparent giftedness could be indicted as nothing, the idea of that is utterly shocking. The Greek word translated as nothing conveys the idea of irrelevance, that is, being of no account. In fact, interestingly, it's the same word Jesus used when speaking to the Pharisees in response to their question about whether or not Jesus thought he was greater than Abraham. What did Jesus say? In John 8:54, Jesus answered them, "If I glorify myself, my glory is, and here's the word, nothing irrelevant of no account. It is my Father who glorifies me." So once again, if you have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if you have All faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, then I'm sorry. You are nothing. You are of no account, irrelevant to the advancement and display of God's glories. Not the gifts themselves, but you, the bearer of the gifts. This is Paul's second tragic and chilling indictment against the loveless. And then we read in verse three, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I want you to notice that the nature of Paul's conditions change in the first two verses. Each condition was a direct reference to the spiritual gifts he mentioned earlier in the chapter or chapter 12. Tongues, prophecy, wisdom, that is, understanding all mysteries, knowledge, faith. But in this third verse, Paul describes two different instances of sacrificial actions or services. And I think they're the kind of things Paul had in mind at the beginning of chapter 12, when Paul wrote in verse 5 and 6 And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The essential idea in verse 3 is that without love, you are spiritually impoverished. You are destitute of all eternal reward, despite the extremes of your sacrificial service. As in the previous verse, Paul presents a compound condition. So let's look at the first condition, <clears throat> what the ESV renders as follows he says if i give all i have now i think the nas actually does a better job of capturing the nuance of the greek and the nas translation reads and if i give all my possessions to feed the poor the greek word translated give away in the esv translation so connotes the idea of not just to give but to give in order to feed The literal idea rendered by the text is if I divide all my property into fragments so that I can dole it out, dole them out in order to put food in the mouths of the poor. That's the essential idea that the text means. Now, it's possible that Paul has in mind Jesus imperative to his disciples when he exhorted them to seek heavenly, not earthly treasure. In Luke 12:33, we hear our Lord say, "Sell your possessions and give to the needy." Or perhaps Paul was thinking of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, whereupon, discerning the worldly yearning of his heart, demanded the following: in Luke 18:21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, "You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have." And give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. Now let's look at Paul's second condition. Along with his warning. And if I deliver up my body to be burned. But have not love. Now. There is a notorious debate. As to whether or not the text should read to be burned. As we've read it. Or to boast. That is. If I deliver up my body, that I may boast. So depending on your translation, it might read that way. Now, each of these verbs, to boast or to to burn, interestingly, have the identical ten-letter spelling except for the fourth character. And if the fourth character is a theta, the verb means to be burned. And if the fourth letter is a chi, then the verb means to boast. And so the source of the debate is a Theta versus Chi spelling variant among the Greek Greek manuscripts. But for many reasons that I won't summarize here, many commentators agree that Paul probably intended to say, if I deliver up my body to be burned. Now, if that's the case, it's very likely that Paul may may have been thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and abednego's supreme sacrifice in the face of nebuchadnezzar's fury that they would not bow to the king's golden image i say supreme sacrifice because remember they didn't know at the time how that story would end did they we read in daniel 3 beginning in 21 then these men were bound in their cloaks their tunics and their hats and their other garments And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Again, look past the familiarity of this narrative and put yourself in the moment not knowing how this would end, can you grasp the gravity of that scene? Now, I want you to transfer the gravity of that scene into Paul's flow of thought. I don't think it's insignificant that Paul presents this as his final condition. What greater picture of supreme self-sacrifice can there be than to surrender your life in one of the most traumatic and painful deaths possible. Now notice, notice what Paul says. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Or, an alternate translation, it profits me nothing. Once again, I think Paul's alluding to something he mentioned earlier in his own letter you remember in chapter 9, Paul made four references to the future benefit he would enjoy as a result of his faithfulness to the gospel. And he called it out in different ways at different points in his argument. He referred to it as his boast or his reward or prize or an imperishable wreath. All of these referring to the very same thing, the future reward that would vindicate the believer's faithfulness in God's promises. Paul tells us that we forfeit all of that, everything, unless love drives our actions. If you surrender every earthly possession as an act of sacrificial service, even the horrific destruction of your own body, but love fails to underwrite your actions, your eternal state is impoverished. You have no reward. Nothing. This is Paul's third tragic and chilling indictment against the loveless. So Let's summarize. Without love, our spiritual gifts produce nothing. We are ignorable. Our works are inconsequential to the kingdom. Without love, we are nothing. Not our gifts, but us. We are irrelevant to the display and advancement of God's glory. Without love, even our sacrificial acts gain us nothing. We forfeit every vestige of eternal reward. We are eternally impoverished. Now, if you look into what the various commentators have to say about this passage, it does not take long before you encounter the opinion that Paul was using hyperbole. That is, intentional exaggeration to make his point. Was he? Well, I don't fully agree with that perspective. Now, who am I to disagree with the commentators? But nonetheless, I I simply don't agree. Here's why. Certainly, Paul sought to shock his audience into attention shock his audience to attention but not in a sensational way and while there might have been some hints of exaggeration in some of paul's statements i don't think paul was appealing to any sort of figurative device in order to emphasize his point point. and he certainly wasn't presenting love as some sort of unattainable idea to which we should merely aspire in fact Paul wasn't speaking any less literally than our Lord spoke in Matthew 7. Be gone from me. I never knew you, sons of lawlessness. Or our Lord said to the rich young ruler, one thing you lack, one thing. Sell all your possessions and come, follow me. You see, Paul appeals to these extreme cases and intensity of speech not primarily for effect, but because of at least two things. First, love that proceeds from the power of the gospel is so utterly important to our vitality as God's covenant people. And two, our propensity to be duped by our naturally high opinion of ourselves is so strong, is so strong. Paul spoke with intensity because the, because the cost of missing Paul's admonitions is so high. Regardless of how gifted, faithful, and sacrificial you or I appear to be on the surface, if love for God, His saints, and our fellow image bearers doesn't profoundly drive everything we do, we produce nothing, we are nothing, and we earn nothing. This could very well be the most arresting three verses in the entire letter. Now, before I share with you what we need to do with Paul's words, I feel compelled to talk briefly about two things. Two things. First, I want you to understand that the non-negotiable demand that love drives everything we do is at the very center of, of redemptive authenticity. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. If you are the real deal, you will love. You will love. And the second thing I want us to consider, or at least to reflect upon, is why? Why is love so central? Why is love so vital? Well, let's pick up the first. Love is at the center of redemptive authenticity you cannot be saved and lack love those are weighty words Paul's expression of love's non-negotiable necessity is not scripture's only word on this matter in fact it is impossible to read scripture and not be pressed by the weight of love's demand I want to quickly point out Five ways, five ways love is exalted in Scripture. To begin with, love is the very backbone of the great commandment. And it is at the heart of a proper understanding of redemptive history. Not my claim, Scriptures. In Matthew 22, we read the words of our Lord in verse 37. And He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, And with all your mind. This, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Love is the backbone of the great commandment. And the second is that love is the means by which the world is to recognize that we are followers of Christ. Again, our Lord our Lord's words in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. Love is the means by which the world recognizes that we are followers of Christ why else is love at the center of redemptive authenticity? Or in what other way? Well, third, love is the means by which we're to recognize in ourselves and be assured of our own salvation. In other words, without love, we have a legitimate cause not to be assured that we are Christ's. If we don't see love working in us, we ought not to have assurance of faith. Why? Because John First John in his epistle is just replete with these exhortations. In 1 John 2, verses 9 and 11, the apostle writes, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother. Now, let me pause right there. Okay? In John's economy of thought, there is simply loving your brother and hating your brother. There is no in-between. Okay? If you don't love, you hate. If you don't hate, you love. There's only a, it's only a two-position switch. There is not a third position in his switch. Okay, so anytime he talks about love, you're either loving and you're not hating. And if you don't love, then you're a hater. Okay, so again, 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going because... The darkness has blinded his eyes. And then he writes in chapter 3, verse 14, We know, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know that, John? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And then in John 4:10, 1 John 4, I'm sorry, 4:20, <clears throat> the apostle writes, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not, he who does not know, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there you have it. Love is the very means by which we are assured of our own salvation. Fourth. Love is the means by which Paul discerned the real deal. Love is the means by which Paul recognized authentic faith. It's His letters, his greetings and prayers are filled with it. Ephesians 1, we read, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Or again, in the letter to the Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Love is the means by which Paul discerned authentic faith. Finally, in the warnings of our Lord to the churches in the book of Revelation, it seems that the church in Ephesus failed to heed Paul's warnings in his letter to Corinth. And in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, we hear the chilling words of our Lord, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you held at first. What love is that? I think it's the love Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We must not trifle with Paul's warnings in First Corinthians thirteen. We must not trample underfoot the severity of his plea. If we do, we do so to our own peril. Now, why? Is love so central? If all this is true, love is the the hallmark of authenticity, of redemptive authenticity. Well, well, why? Why is love so vital? Why? Why does love occupy that central role versus something else? And this, um, uh, and, and needless to say, these are deep waters. Entire books can, have, and will continue to be written on this topic. But let me take this gargantuan topic and just focus your attention on a single specific consideration. Love <clears throat> is one of the primary attributes, perhaps I would do well to say the chief attribute of God's character that he has chosen to share with his redeemed image bearers. In other words, God empowers his redeemed image bearers to radiantly display that which is rooted in God alone, thus flooding creation with the glory of God's being and personhood. Again, John is essential here. In 1 John 4, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves is, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Yes, God is love. But let us move past our numbing familiarity with that statement and see if we can't recover just a little bit of a white-hot glory that echoes from that truth. You see, up until this point, if you're paying attention, up until this point, I've intentionally refrained from describing or defining what love is. The reason for this is because that's what's taken up in our subsequent text in the coming weeks. Today's text is concerned about the the primacy of love. And so that's my job today, to talk about the primacy of love, not define it. But I think we've reached a point where we need some degree of definition. And this is where Wayne Grudem is helpful. In his systematic theology, Grudem offers a very simple but quite profound definition of God's love. God's love is the quality of God in which, quote, God eternally gives of himself to others, end quote. It is part of God's nature to give of himself, even at great cost, in order to bring about blessing or good for his creatures. Now, of course, of course, the greatest expression of God's love is the cross. And we best understand the cross only after we first understand the true severity of our sin, our innate hostility to God, our supreme arrogance by which we fashion a notion of God after our own image, our delight in our own glory rather than God's, our helpless and hopeless enslavement to sin, the justice of God's fury, against our sin and our love of it and the righteousness and fairness of our condemnation to an eternal hell apart from the movement of God's sovereign grace on our behalf. If we understand all of that, we best understand the cross. We best understand the cross. And God's love is the heartbeat of this mighty saving work that He alone accomplishes on your behalf and mine. Remember what I just echoed. All the things that, that help us understand the cross. And then we come to something like Ephesians 2, verse 4. All that being true, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How audacious is that? That would be nothing but supreme arrogance if scripture itself did not say that. And then in John, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, it only stands to reason then that those who have been claimed by God as his people, those who have been overcome by the power of eternal life, those who have been miraculously transformed from the kingdom of death and darkness to the kingdom of light and life will be supernaturally equipped by the power of his spirit to love as he loves. This is why love is so important. This is why love is so non-negotiable. Love is at the very epicenter of God's being. Love is at the center of the cross. Love is the indelible signature of God's transformative grace upon the redeemed sinner. And love is the lifeblood of God's redemptive community, the church. So what do we do with all this? How do we steward Paul's admonition? Well, I think there's a certain progress to the way Paul intends for us to respond to these three verses. If you prefer, call these applications. I'll mention them in summary. I'll say a few more words about each, and then I'll be done. First, we should be shocked. This should be our initial reaction to the text. And then we need to be frightened. Yes, we should be scared, brothers and sisters. And if Paul's warnings do not scare us, then we are fools. And finally, today's text is the kind of text that should drop us to our knees in desperate, fervent prayer. First, we should be shocked. Paul's language is sharp, and he intended it to be. He wants his words to cut through superficiality. He wants to cut through calloused minds and hearts. He wants to draw blood. David Garland sums this up quite nicely in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. And he explains that Paul confronts his readers with the sobering reality that the persons with the giftedness that Paul just got done describing in chapter 12, they may seem on the surface to be invaluable to the church, but God, who inspects beneath the surface, sees the lovelessness, which makes all these glorious endowments worthless. Do you, remember, do you remember the scene when the Lord God took Samuel to anoint David? Even the prophet himself was dumbfounded to learn that it was not Eliab that was the chosen one the one who certainly looked the part, nor was it the rest of David's brothers. In fact, he had to ask, is there yet anyone else? And it was David whom God chose. Why? Because we get another sobering warning in scripture because God sees the heart. You see, you and I, we see the outside. But God penetrates right to the core of our being and he sees who we really are. And he sees our love, or our lovelessness. We should be shocked. And then and follows, second, that we should be scared. You see, why do I say we should be scared? Because we are so easily deceived. We are so easily captivated by superficial things, flattering ourselves so that we think we're in a better state than we really are. If the love Paul and the scriptures speak of is in fact an attribute of God himself that he shares with his redeemed through a supernatural movement of his spirit, and I am convinced that it is, then the love demanded of us, it isn't something we can manufacture. It isn't even something we can mimic. You see, our pursuit of love is too easily influenced by the superficialities of the culture around us. We must not settle for that which we might be tempted to think is love, but in reality is not. We dare not, dare not confuse biblical love with merely a warm environment where we all get along. We dare not confuse biblical love with personal personal temperament or personality. We dare not confuse biblical love with merely a desire to be around people. You see, if the love demanded of us is in fact a supernatural quality that proceeds from the transforming work of God's spirit within us, well then, in our strength alone, the love that scripture exhorts us to, the love demanded of us, well well that's just as inaccessible to the extrovert as it is to the introvert. Because it's something supernatural. It's not something manufactured or that precipitates or derives from who we are. It's thrust upon us, just like our righteousness. Our righteousness is an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. So, too, the love that we love, it's an alien love. It's the very character of God himself imparted to us through the movement of his spirit. It is just as supernatural as our righteousness itself. And so I say this extrovert-introvert thing as a warning to the extrovert not to overly uh, overestimate your love on the basis of that. And I say this as an encouragement to the introvert. That is just as inaccessible to the extrovert as it is to you because we're dealing with something supernatural. We're dealing with something supernatural. Paul explained to Titus that before we were saved, we passed our days in malice and envy, hating one another, Titus three, 3. <clears throat> excuse me, we must take great care, brothers and sisters, great care that we have not called a truce with our flesh, nursing a low grade fever of malice, envy, or maybe even a well-hidden hate among one another, nor are we to pout in self-pity or defeat when we recognize how utterly contrary true love is to our natural state. The author of Hebrew warns, in Hebrews three thirteen, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, the ease with which uh, we can flatter ourselves while being so easily entangled with a hardened heart, that should scare us, brothers and sisters. Why? So that, so that our dependency upon the most important response is this, that we would actually fall to our knees in fervent prayers. I'm not encouraging you to stay in fright. I'm saying that the realities of how hardened our heart could really be should be that which propels us to our knees. And that is the ultimate response, I believe, the Apostle wants to elicit among us. We fall to our knees in fervent prayer. You see, we are indeed fools. We are fools indeed if we simply assume that because we confess Christ with our lips, that we love each other as Christ loved us. We love only to the degree that we love God and abide in Jesus Christ. John fifteen five, we hear our Lord say, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Sound familiar? Brothers and sisters, pray. Pray, pray that you and I would abide well. And that by tasting God's glory and delighting in him, we would love in spite of our fleshly inclination to the contrary. And remember the larger context of Paul's letter. Paul wants to change the way we think. In particular, he wants to change the way we think about the church. You see, the more we understand God's sovereign disclosure of his holy nature, The more we understand who God is and what He has done in light of who we are, the more we have an increasingly high view of the cross. And the more we grasp the height of the cross, the more we want the church to be an indisputable testimony of God's supreme worth and Christ's victory among all earthly and heavenly witnesses. We want the church to work because God's reputation is at stake. And the more we want that, the more we abide in Christ, delighting in the Father, empowered by His Spirit to display His glory by living out His love in us as only only His redeemed image bearers can do. Pray that you would cherish and manifest these things. Father, heavy words, heavy words indeed, but we need them, Lord. Father, have mercy on us. Lord, bring us to our knees that we would not take our capacity to love for granted, but we would recognize its utterly supernatural nature and a testimony of your true work among your people. Oh, Lord, make us see what we need to see so we would repent and that we would thirst for you that we would have just a glimpse of your glory, that we would taste you, Lord, that we would delight in you only to want more, and that we would gladly hand ourselves over as your faithful servant to do with us as you desire, and that is to raise us up and radiate the love that is yours alone, being born out and lived out in the lives of your redeemed image bearers. Make us that people, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.